The greatest story ever told is a true story. It is a story of adventures, battles, kings and queens, heroes and villains, good and evil, history and prophecy. It is your story. Come join the adventure of the Bible story. Chapter 173 Great News The land is dark. Tonight is a world of shadows. On the horizon, the blue-black sky meets the solid black earth. But something is changing. The sky is slowly turning deep blue. It brightens slowly, gradually, relentlessly. Across the surface of the sea and the lakes, up and down the mountains, across the plains and down in the valleys, shadows fall back, flee, and fade away. Morning chases away the night. The day dawns. Marvelous light shines across the sparkling waters, the shores, the plains, the hills, the woodlands, the valleys. In the nests, swallows, petrels, and egrets untuck their heads from beneath their wings. In the forests of sycamore, olive, cedar, and cottonwood trees, deer rise to their feet. In the marshes and lake shores, salamanders, newts, and toads begin to move. In the crags of the mountains, onyxes, ibexes, and leopards step out over the rocks. It is also a new day for the people of the land. Doors creak open and bang shut. Carts and wagons begin to roll. Voices rise in the morning air. Farmers carry buckets of feed to their livestock. Craftsmen open the windows to their workshops. Fishermen sail to open water. Oil workers bring their first loads into their processing plants. Miners, pavers, and masons bundle up their tools and head out to their job sites. It is another new day in the land of Judea. The year is 5 BC. The people who live in Judea are called Jews. Their land already has an ancient history. About 2,000 years before 5 BC, God himself promised this land to their ancient forefather, Abraham. About 1,500 years before 5 BC, Abraham's descendants had become a nation and settled this land. About 1,000 years before 5 BC, that nation had become a great kingdom under a man named King David. But that was long ago. Since then, the people of Judea have suffered dark times. The kingdom of Israel had split, and the people in both parts of it were eventually conquered, enslaved, and removed from the land. Later, many Jews returned to live in Judea, but they no longer had their own kingdom. Now, in 5 BC, they are controlled by a foreign superpower, the Roman Empire. The Roman government allows the Jews to live, work, and worship without many restrictions, as long as they pay. 
The way people are living in 5 BC is similar to the way most people have lived for most of history. Most of them spend their days farming. They labor to raise livestock and grow barley, spelt, lentils, dates, grapes, apricots, olives, and figs. People also work as shepherds, potters, metal workers, soap makers, olive oil pressers, wine makers, stone fitters, innkeepers, weavers, tailors, teachers, butchers, bakers, cooks. They trade food, tools, furniture, stone, jewelry, lumber, glass, fabrics, fish, spices, and grain. Over the mountains, away from the coast, is the capital city of Judea. The city has no major industries and is close to no major highways. Yet people from all over the known world come here. This is Jerusalem, the holy city. Three times a year, tens of thousands of people travel to Jerusalem to worship, and the population of the city quadruples. People fill its synagogues, alleyways, intersections, markets, bazaars, shops, inns, taverns, homes, and even the fields outside the city wall where they camp out inside thousands and thousands of tents. The multitudes travel here by foot or on mules or wagons. They come to observe the holy days commanded in Exodus 23 and Deuteronomy 16. Many of these travelers come from the east, warily crossing mile after mile through the heat and dust of the desert as they trudge uphill on the road from Jericho. Then they round the Mount of Olives. That is when they see the city for the first time. Standing along a steep ridge across the valley of Jehoshaphat is their destination, Jerusalem. To the left stands a collection of old, weathered, sand-tinged limestone houses huddled at the lower, southern end of the city. On the far side stands the upper city, where white marbled mansions gleam under the sun. Around the city stands a huge wall stretching for four miles, but the first thing you see is the temple. This enormous set of buildings dominates Jerusalem. It stands on a gigantic white stone platform that rises several stories above the ground in some places. Atop the platform is another wall, behind which stand the gleaming buildings of the temple itself. The tallest building is the holy place, which rises up to 150 feet. This is a building for God himself to dwell in spirit. You approach the massive wall and the eastern gate, slowly filing through along with hundreds of other travelers and residents. Near a group of soldiers, the publican's officers inspect each person and charge taxes on all goods coming in and going out. Inside the city is a maze of streets, winding, intersecting, ascending, descending, and occasionally widening into porches, gardens, courtyards, or plazas. The city is under construction. Builders are at work, guiding oxen towing ten-foot blocks of stone on wooden rollers, standing on scaffolding, chiseling stones, and operating cranes to hoist blocks and timbers into place. 
In 5 BC, Jerusalem is multiple thousands of years old, but many of its buildings are only a couple of decades or a couple of years old. Much of the heavy taxes are being spent on enormous construction projects, streets, bridges, fortifications, public buildings, palaces, monuments, an amphitheater, and the temple itself. The temple complex is the center of activity. It covers about 30 acres with several large buildings for priests and their Levite assistants to use as they sacrifice animals and administer other religious laws commanded in the first five books of the Bible. Thousands of priests, Levites, and other people bring into the temple the things required for its services, sacrificial animals, special clothing for priests, bread, spices, incense, firewood, water, vessels, tools, and other items. This is just another busy day inside Judea. No one here realizes it, but this is where the greatest event in human history is about to occur. Inside the temple, an old priest is performing his duties. He is scheduled to serve in the temple during the course of Abia, a Sabbath-to-Sabbath -Sabbath shift that falls in early June. This evening, the priest has been assigned a rare duty that most priests never receive, administering the sacrifice of incense, a symbol of prayer. Meanwhile, outside the holy place, tens of thousands of people are gathered, praying to God. The prayers are almost finished. The crowd waits for the priest to come out and lead one last prayer. The sun is setting in the west. Its orange rays shine on the light yellow, cream, and white stone buildings of the city and the gleaming metallic ornaments of the temple, turning the city into Jerusalem of gold. Then the last rays of sunlight disappear behind the western hills. A night begins to fall. Meanwhile, many people in the crowd are asking the same question. Where, where, where is Zacharias the priest? Where is Zacharias the priest? Where is Zacharias the priest? The priest should have finished administering the sacrifice of incense and led the closing prayer some time ago. A few moments later, a lamp shines through one of the doorways across the court, and a figure exits, walking slowly. The people wait for him to speak, but he does not speak, because he cannot. One of the other priests approaches him. Zacharias, are you ready to lead the prayer? The old priest shakes his head and points to his throat. Sir, did you complete the sacrifice? He nods firmly. Are you safe? Is everything safe inside the holy place? Zacharias nods again and gestures to indicate that there is no danger. The look in his eyes shows that something extremely sobering just happened to him inside the temple. The other priests ask, Zacharias, did you see a vision from God? This is exactly what happened. The other priest leads the closing prayer for Zacharias. As the crowd disperses, 
Word spreads that Zacharias had seen a vision but cannot communicate it because he has suddenly lost his voice. Later that night, Zacharias lies in bed awake, alone with his vivid memory of what has just happened. He had conducted the incense offering carefully, precisely dividing equal measures of sweet spices, stacked tea, ornica, galbanum, and pure frankincense, grinding them into a fine mixture, slowly burning the mixture over hot coals, and producing a cloud with a delightful fragrance representing prayer. But when the cloud began to dissipate, suddenly he saw someone else in the room. The figure was standing just a few feet away. Zachariah stepped back in fear. <gasps> then the figure spoke. Do not be afraid, Zacharias. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. Before he is even born, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. You will name him John. Your son will turn many of the children of Israel to God in the spirit and power of Elijah. He will help prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. Zacharias knew this was an angel from God. He and his wife had prayed for decades to have children, but had never had any. Yet today, an angel had told him not only that he and Elizabeth would have a baby, but that this baby would grow up to be a man God would use in an incredible way. It was almost unbelievable. How can I prove that this is true? Zacharias asked. I am too old for children. So is my wife. I am Gabriel, an angel who stands in the presence of God. He sent me to give you this good news, but you have used your voice to doubt his promise. For that reason, you will no longer have a voice at all until these promises that you have doubted are fulfilled. Zacharias now silently stares at the ceiling, the angel's words cycling through his mind. Prayer, your prayer has, been, has heard. been heard. Wife your wife of Elizabeth, Elizabeth will bear a son, a son, a son, a son filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. He will help prepare the people. But one phrase rings through his mind more than any other over and over and over again. The coming of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Lord. At the end of his tour of duty in the temple, Zacharias returns home to the hill country of Judea. Two of his friends accompany him to help explain to Elizabeth what has happened, or at least what little they know about it. Less than two weeks later, a miracle has occurred. Elizabeth is pregnant. Six months after that, another announcement is made, the greatest announcement in human history. It happens about 60 miles away from Jerusalem, 
in a northern town called Nazareth. At her family's home, a young woman is thinking about her upcoming wedding as she finishes her housework. Nazareth is not a wealthy or prominent town, and she is not a wealthy or prominent woman. But she comes from a long family line that traces back to King David, and she leads a life of faith and obedience toward God. Her name is Mary. Suddenly, a strong voice startles her. Hail! <gasps> you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And you, of all women, are greatly blessed. The words are positive, but Mary is startled by this unknown voice. Do not be afraid, Mary. God has given you favor. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You will name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and there will be no end to his kingdom. An angel from God is speaking to her. Mary believes this incredible promise, but she is also concerned for the man she is about to marry. How will I have this son? She asks. Since I am an unmarried virgin. By his Holy Spirit, God will create the Son in you. When this child is born, he will be called the Son of God. The angel's message ends with more good news. Mary's cousin, Elizabeth, who had been barren and is quite old, is now six months pregnant. For with God, nothing is impossible. Mary answers all of this incredible news with a simple statement of faith and obedience. I am God's handmaid. Let all that you say come to pass. With that, the angel leaves. Soon, Mary is pregnant. She is overjoyed, but she also has a concern. She is unmarried. And when her fiancé and everyone else finds out she is pregnant, they will think she sinned. Before long, she travels away from Nazareth to the hilly countryside to stay with someone who can understand what she is going through, her cousin Elizabeth. Mary's journey finally ends, and she walks through the door at Zacharias and Elizabeth's house. Hello? Elizabeth, it's me, Mary. After a moment, Elizabeth slowly stands up from her couch across the room. She is smiling, but tears are streaming down her face. She finally speaks. Her voice is loud and full of emotion. Mary, you of all women are blessed. And who am I that the mother of my Lord is visiting me? As soon as I heard your voice, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. Mary's eyes fill with tears. Her cousin knows she is pregnant. She knows she did not sin. She knows her child is actually from God. Mary praises God as the two women hug each other tightly. Two important mothers with two important children growing inside their wombs. 
Three months later, Elizabeth gives birth to a son in the spring of 4 BC. When the little boy is eight days old, Zacharias and Elizabeth bring him to be circumcised. At this point, the father traditionally names the baby, but since Zacharias cannot speak, his visiting older brother speaks for him. The name of this miraculous little boy is Zacharias, after his father. Elizabeth protests, politely but firmly. No, his name will be John. John? Why John? None of his family have had that name. The brother gestures to Zacharias, who still cannot speak. One of his grandnephews brings him a slate and a piece of chalk, and Zacharias writes, his name is John. As he finishes writing the last letter, Zacharias can suddenly speak again. He shouts with joy and praises God for keeping his promises, not just his promise to give them a son, but his promise to send a savior who will save God's people from their enemies and help them overcome their sins. Zacharias and Elizabeth's relatives, friends, neighbors, and people across the entire hill country are amazed by what has happened and fascinated by what God has prophesied about this baby boy's future. Around the same time that John is born, Mary returns to Nazareth. She is three months pregnant. She sends a message to the man she has been dating and courting for months, the man to whom she is engaged to marry, Joseph. Joseph is stunned to learn that Mary is pregnant. She has always tried hard to keep God's laws. He very much loves her, and he was certain that she loved him. But if she is pregnant, she must have sinned. In fact, God's law in Deuteronomy 22 says that people guilty of adultery must be stoned to death. The Jews live under the laws of the Roman Empire and they do not execute people who commit adultery, but they do punish them severely for this sin. Joseph struggles under the pain of what has happened, but he does not want to seek revenge against Mary. He knows she is going to suffer in life for her shameful sin. He decides to do the most loving thing he can do in this situation, refrain from denouncing her in public, quietly cancel their marriage, and say goodbye. Joseph prays beside his bed. He prays for Mary for more than an hour and he prays for a couple minutes for himself that God will help him endure the bitter, miserable heartbreak he feels inside. Eventually, Joseph goes to bed and falls asleep. He sees and hears and feels something much more powerful than an ordinary dream. This is a rare dream. It is an angel from God delivering him a message. Joseph, you descendant of David, do not be afraid to take Mary to be your wife. The angel says, Her baby did not come from sinning. It came from God's Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. 
he will save his people from their sins. Joseph awakens, stunned. He puts on his robe and slowly walks to the window, looking out at the night sky. He knows that he, of all people, has just received a message from God, and Mary had not committed adultery. She had not betrayed God. She had not betrayed Him. She had been so faithful to God that He is now blessing her with the honor of giving birth to a Savior. His respect and honor for Mary comes rushing back, greater, wider, deeper than before. His love for her fills his mind. He knows that a hard trial is ahead. People will think Mary committed adultery, either with Joseph before they were married or with another man. They will think he and Mary and the baby should be full of guilt and shame. This will be a lifelong trial, but he will face it with Mary together. It will be well worth it to be the servant of such a great God, the husband of such a virtuous woman, and the stepfather of the Savior. This child will not be the son of Joseph, but the son of God. He will have a common Jewish name, Jesus, basically the name Joshua, which means God our salvation but he will be the most uncommon human being ever born. He will be the Lord, the Son of the Highest, the heir of King David. He will rule over God's people forever. He will save his people from their sins. He will fulfill a prophecy that the Jews often read at the temple and synagogues. Isaiah 7:14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a title describing who this son would be. It means God with us. In about six more months, that Savior will be born. To be continued in our next episode, and continue the adventure by reading the Bible story. Find it under the Resources tab at pcg.church.